Welcome everybody to Deconstructing Health. And you all know who I am. This is Kiefer. And today we've got Dr. Rocky Patel back on the show. Hello, Kiefer. Look at my timing. It's impeccable as always. Yes. That was actually much better than on the old previous shows. So it just shows everything everything's new and working better this time. Excellent. Yeah. Everything's good. Uh today we were gonna talk about the time restricted feeding and the different circadian rhythms that, that tries to take advantage of and also the minuscule amount of research that that's actually based on as far as its efficacy as far as it being able to produce any kind of results and the research is much more sparse than you've probably been led to believe if you've been listening to a lot of the chatter about it i think that fasting seems to be all the rage these days right i mean everybody seems to be fasting like you know weeks on end yeah it's when we get towards the end of the podcast, it you know the synopsis will basically be it's kind of like a hammer. Fasting is like a hammer, and if that's all you have is a hammer, then everything looks like a nail. And it's just really not the tool for the job most of the time. So I, I know I, I know we were talking earlier, and you know, you know the key points from whether you're looking at carb night or carb backloading is taking advantage of the sensitivity of insulin to your advantage. And, you know, we talked about how, you know, we tend to be more insulin sensitive in the morning and more resistant in the evening. And so I guess from a circadian point of view, the argument is then you should not be fasting in the morning or yeah, you should not be fasting in the morning and you should be preferentially uh, fasting in the evening. It seems counterintuitive though to the insulin sensitivity issue. Well, not if... If you're working under the assumption that you're on a carb-based diet, which most of the people still who are pushing the time-restricted feeding, especially, there's they're still operating under the you know carbohydrate paradigm. I mean, they're pushing juicing and you know eating the whole foods, all that kind of crap, and they haven't parsed that out. So if you're eating carbohydrates, then you could come up with a logic that says, well, I should eat my carbohydrates when I'm the most insulin sensitive. And I think that's where some of the justification for it comes from. I mean, we should just talk about the research. Uh, who's you, Who's the, the doctor who's really pushing this up? Um, um, I think is it Sachin Panda? Is that right? Yes, yes. You know, the... This has been talked about as if there's a lot of research, right? Like, oh, you know, this works in humans, blah, blah, blah. We have this research that shows that if you don't eat at night or if you narrow your window, you get all these great benefits like weight loss and uh, glucose control and all these kind of things. But there's been no direct studies on humans yet. Like, I couldn't find any. The only study is the mouse study. Actually, I think it was rats. Yeah, I think so, it was so, rats as well. Yeah, so so far this is being based off of just rat data. One study at that is currently available. You know, others might have been done, but they aren't. They haven't been published yet. If they have been completed, and 
rats and rodents in general, it's very, very hard to chrono shift them at all. You know, their biorhythms are, are very heavily set. It's anybody who's owned a hamster knows this. It's impossible to get your hamster to stay awake during the day and sleep at night. Like, it doesn't matter what you do. Their circadian rhythm is very, very deeply entrenched. People obviously are not. So there's a just taking that into consideration would make any reasonable person, scientist or otherwise, question taking one rat study and all of a sudden saying, well, everybody should eat according to this new time-restricted feeding, which doesn't even have very good rules, right? It's either a twelve, a 3 to 12-hour eating window. Correct. Like, like how – if you don't understand the process enough to narrow the window down – to from three to 12 hours or something wrong because most people that fits the old advice right that didn't used to work oprah used to promote that okay eat first thing in the morning and stop by seven so if you wake up at seven and you eat stop eating at seven at night you the old advice was time restricted feeding there's nothing even new here Sorry, well, it's starting to go off on a little bit of a rant. No, that's okay. But I mean, I mean, you know, in terms of lack of human studies, I mean, we're, I think there are some studies in diabetic patients, though, right? When we look at low sugar control, um, that have been, have been humans, uh, showing that the diabetics that fast and skip breakfast, well, actually, it shouldn't be even fasting, is breakfast skipping, right? If they skip breakfast, yeah. their sugar is worse than the diabetics who eat breakfast. Right. Which, completely contradicts the logic behind trying to eat first thing in the morning if you're not diabetic because that's the the insulin paradox they've been talking i mean the insulin paradox or insulin sensitivity paradox has been known for decades now and that's that people who are diabetic like healthy people and i've talked about this in carb backloading a lot healthy people are most insulin sensitive in the morning and that fades off as the day goes on. But diabetics, the insulin sensitivity paradox is that diabetics are most insulin sensitive at night. And so do you want to comment on those studies? Well, I mean, I think to bring and, your and, point home. Well, I think that the the issue there then is if they're if they are more insulin sensitive at night um, and they're more resistant in the morning, you know, as they skip and the other issue would be, you know, fasting in general and diabetics as well, because that could potentially affect insulin sensitivity peripherally as well, too. But, um, you know, in those studies, they show that if the diabetic patient skips breakfast, they have worsening glucose control versus the diabetics who eat breakfast. Uh, my, and so I guess that from that standpoint, if they're more insulin resistant in the morning and more insulin sensitive at night, but I mean, overall, their baseline sensitivity is going to be reduced anyways. So I guess, you know, from that standpoint, if they're eating their meals at breakfast time, um, they're going to actually, it would, one would think they'd have worsening uh, control by eating breakfast, would, would they not? But that's not what they find in the studies. Right. If, if you assume the logic from time-restricted feeding is true, which I'm just saying right now, there is no logical conclusions you can make to say – because insulin sensitivity is higher in the morning, you should eat in the morning and not eat at night. But that's their claim. Right. Because 
insulin sensitivity, somehow eating during that period equates to health. They don't explain how, they don't explain why, they go into some, you know, abstract talking about studies that have been done on a lot of the clock genes that we found and how those clock genes regulate a lot of processes, but they don't tie it together and say, well, how is that going to make you healthy? How is that going to fix anything? How is that going to make you lose weight? Like they just gloss over all of that. So there, there's no way to use that research to say you should eat in the morning because that's when you're insulin sensitive. And the data you just brought up on diabetics completely contradicts that because if they don't eat during that period when they are least insulin sensitive and they eat at night when they're most insulin sensitive and their blood glucose gets totally out of whack, I mean, that right there is a complete contradiction to their claims. Like, why doesn't that work for a diabetic if it's supposed to work for somebody who's healthy? And if they had any understanding of how the body worked, if they really did have some, you know, scientific framework behind their reasoning, they should be able to explain that. So maybe it is the case, but you need to explain to us why. You can't just make a general claim, okay, you need to eat when you're most insulin sensitive, but then look at diabetics and say, well, diabetics shouldn't eat when they're most insulin sensitive. Like why? Yeah. Tell me, give me the why. Yeah. And, and not to mention, I mean, obviously these are preliminary studies and there's no long-term data anyways. So you don't really know in the long run, does it affect, you know, any of the complications you see, you know, or even basic, basic things like A1C and things like that. So at least something I know of. Yeah, that's, and to me, that's the big problem. That's what I've been trying to tackle over the last two years. I mean, you and I have talked about a lot of the stuff I've been doing over the last couple of years. And that's what I've been trying to do is that framework to say, okay, if you do eat this way, what are the short-term consequences, which might be good? What are the long-term consequences, which might be bad? And unfortunately, nobody's put that work in. They just do some cursory studies maybe on rats and say, oh, well, this is the solution to everything. Well, hopefully we'll have some answers soon, right? Well, I mean, I will, I'll be presenting my framework soon. And I don't know if that's <laughs> yeah. the answers, but I think it is. I mean, I've, we, we've talked about how this whole getting hung up on insulin sensitivity or insulin period is the wrong thing to look at. And we've talked about this back and forth over the last couple of years. You know, insulin really and looking at insulin sensitivity and food timing is in regards to health is kind of a, well, I don't want to say a canard because it's not completely a canard, but it's, it's a misdirection. I think it's a total misdirection. Well, I, and I think that, I mean, like I said at the beginning, fasting seems to be all the rage right now. So if that were such a big issue, one would think that, you know, there should be differences in those people that are doing fasting, using fasting as a tool to, you know, lose weight essentially, um, which is the kind of the, the tool they're using it for. And you know, yeah. I don't think you really clinically, I don't see that. I mean, I've got people who, who you will skip dinner. I'll have people who skip breakfast. I'll have people who will do like some more extended fast and they, they tend to all lose weight. I mean, you know, so 
one would think of it's such an important issue, why wouldn't it make a difference, you know, at least what I'm seeing clinically? Yeah, that's, well, at some point, calories in, calories out does matter. Like, you know, you can, if you push the system far enough in a certain direction, you can really start to see the effects manifest. So if you're doing extreme fasts, like, um, I think Jason Fung has at the very least 24 hour fasts in his programs. And I think even longer fasting for, it depends. I, yeah, I haven't yeah. really looked into what he's doing, but I'm sure, I'm sure people are doing more than 24 hours. Yeah. I've seen up to online by, you know, doctor recommendations up to 72 hour fasts, which is pretty extreme. But if let's say that's not quite half the week, but if for almost half the week you're not eating and then you consciously don't make up those calories during the remainder of the week, you have to lose weight. I mean, you've, you've pushed so far into the paradigm, you're going to lose weight. Now, that weight might be bad weight. You're going to lose some fat-free mass with that. You're going to lose some internal organ tissue, and as that starts to wear down the, the storage in the splachnic bed, then you're going to start to lose some muscle tissue. So you know, you are going to lose weight. The question is, is that bringing you, is that making you more healthy? Well, that and, is, the, that is the key question, right? I, I know. And may, notice I said, weight. I didn't say anything about health either. So. Oh yeah. 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 You're not so, making any fallacious claims. <laughs> and, you know, I like to use, I, you know, just because calorie in calorie out is like a four letter word or a four letter acronym. I, I always tend yeah. to use energy and energy out. I mean, because when it comes to the end of the day, that's essentially what we're looking at. I mean, certainly the problem is is that that's a big big black box in between, and it's just not calories. So, yeah, and you know things do change. I mean, it, it's just such a more complex issue than everybody makes it out to be. Because if you take calories too low, then I talked about this on um, on another show. If you take calories too low, then you've gone lower than your body fat can actually provide energy. So then other systems have to be tapped into for that, and you start losing lean tissue. And that's where we see problems. So you can't just say, well, if you cut this many calories for this many days, you're going to lose this many pounds of fat. That's just not possible. And And then that still leaves open the whole question of, is it making you more healthy? And the assumption always is if you're not fat, then you're healthy, or the less fat you are, the more healthy you are. And I can say with 100% definitiveness that that is absolutely false. But the converse is true. The healthier you are, the less body fat you will hold. And the sicker you are, the more body fat you will hold. Did you want to make any comments on that? <laughs> I find that real interesting. I mean, in the sense that um, I and I'll, I always go back to the diabetic patient because that's kind of what I'm seeing day in and day out in the office. I mean, mm-hmm. I have my fair share of non-obese diabetic patients. And so, yeah. I mean, it, and it's it's you know, we've kind of talked about the mitochondria as being the real key factor here. And when it comes down to it, hopefully eventually we'll have some type of assay to figure, you know, that out from a clinical standpoint. But, you know, 
you know, you have you have skinny diabetics. You know, I call them the skinny fat guys. You know. Yeah. And and we see it all the time. And, yeah. And I and also see that I also see the opposite phenotype, right? I've got the the very large obese patient who's not diabetic. Right. right. Yeah. So they're they're effective at really stuffing adipose tissue in the subcutaneous tissue, and avoiding the vers visceral um, cavity. And so. those quote unquote anomalies, they're not that anomalous, but any good theory of health or diet or fat loss or weight loss should be able to explain those cases. And like, I don't know anybody that can. And you know, that's one of the things I can't explain now. I can't explain why they're skinny fat people and how we could identify them before they become diabetic and why there's really overweight people who aren't diabetic yet. You know, there's answers to those questions, but you have to do a lot of work to find the answers. And like I said, unfortunately, nobody really seems to want to do that work. Well, the solution is eat a high-fat diet that's low in protein. Don't you know that? If you've been on Twitter <laughs> all this time, that's the solution. <laughs> right. And and still, that begs the question, okay, that – and that's the interesting thing. Like all these things work. Time-restricted feeding works, but you have to know what what that means. What does work – what does it mean that the diet works? And it's very rare that when somebody says that – that they mean anything other than the diet helps you to lose weight. And sometimes they might be more specific and say it helps you lose fat. Okay, in that instance, it works. And there are, from that point of view, a lot of diets that work. And again, we should be able to say why every single one of those different diets works in that way, but what are the underlying consequences? And that's what I had talked about on a previous show is, you know, you can be ketogenic and all of your blood work all of a sudden looks great, but did you, are you becoming more healthy? You might be losing body fat, but are you getting more healthy? And the, the answer to that, like, we should be able to answer that question. Do you agree? I would hope so. Yeah. If, if we had a science of health, we should be able to answer that question. And the answer to that question is no, you're not getting more healthy. And I, I think you can speak to this too because you've had patients that have either done ketogenic or they've lost a lot of weight on some other diet. They've come off of that diet, and it doesn't take long for them to get back into the same deranged state as they were previously. Yeah, we'll see that. Or right. you know, they go. Let's say they go on diet X. They do really well. They lose the weight, and then you get that creep, right? So slowly over the year, they get about. You know, they gain, let me, let's say they lose 50 pounds and they lose, they gain 15 back, right? So is this staying on the diet or? No, they go off their diet, but they slowly okay. kind of regain their, 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 their weight kind of slowly comes up or you get a big right. rebound effect and they lose it. And then automatically within a month, it's back on again. Yeah. Which, you know? which is the most common effect yeah. across all diets. And <clears throat> that to me follows what I said earlier. If you're healthy like truly healthy you'll carry less fat but if you're sick you're going to carry more fat and i think that is one of the single biggest pieces of evidence that all of these diets are not making people more healthy they're either freezing their state of sickness or they're making them more sick because 
they usually either gain all the weight back or they gain the weight back and more, which means that the diet actually made them more sick during that process of fat loss. And we should be able to explain those things. And I can explain all those things. Um, and I, I know I'm just teasing everybody who's listening to this. <laughs> Although I've told you, so you're not in the dark. Everybody else. <laughs> oh, and, and I guess one of the frustrating things that I've I've really become less active on social media just because of the I find that the low carb low carb community has become really it's swung the pendulum one to one direction, and it's been it's almost like you talk to a vegan in a way. To be honest with you, yeah, right? you've got a lot of a lot of. Um, providers and people online and in and it is it's like two dichotomous relationship you got vegans on one end and you've got low carb high fat people on the other end and there is no middle ground as if there is this is a black and white issue and it's just it's it just uh my head explodes <laughs> yeah yeah i yeah i it, it that's for me and you as well you know, that's one reason we've been less active on social media is we're actually doing things to try to solve these problems. Like you're working directly with people. I'm helping through my coaches and I'm trying to understand and define these things in a way that can actually help people. Because I know social media is entertaining, but it's not helping anybody, um, which is where I feel like all of this effort needs to go. And we've kind of wandered off topic of fasting and time restricted feeding, but it all it all ties together, I think. What about the let's talk, how about the effect of exercise and fasting, or at least circadian rhythm standpoint? Let's go back. Actually, I shouldn't say fasting, circadian rhythm. So we always recommend trying to, you know, if you can, it's preferentially to do your weight training um, or your training in the evening. So. I mean, is that more related to the uh, oxidative capacity of mitochondria from a diurnal rhythm standpoint? Is that why we want to do that? Um, well, so I'm going to back up a little bit, and I always have to separate out what we mean by exercise now because resistance training, I mean, there's essentially never a bad time to resistance train. And no matter how sick you might be, resistance training has a positive effect depending on the type of reason i'm i'm thinking in the mold of classic resistance training where you go in you do some sets you do some reps not crossfit or you know like what they have those metabolic there's like some sort of metabolic workouts now that include that incorporate resistance training i'm talking about like the classic resistance training that's made to either strengthen or increase the size of skeletal muscle tissue there's really never a bad time to do that um, you are never going to oversaturate the mitochondria their ability to process energy and regardless of the diet you're on you you're going to get positive benefit um, other types of exercise however it's one of those convoluted issues Okay. <laughs> I mean, you, you know, my take on resistance training, although because that's what carb backloading is based off of, but I realize that carb backloading works actually for several other reasons, 
not so heavily tied to manipulating your resistance training around your circadian rhythms. Uh, it's still advantageous not to eat your carbs in the morning, um, but it has to do more with how filled up your muscle tissue is with carbohydrates, how effectively you can fill them up with carbohydrates, which turns out to be the 30 minutes post-workout is the most effective way to increase muscle glycogen stores as quickly as possible. Um, and I forgot where I was going with that. Uh, we're talking about exercise and oh yeah, and rhythm. and the glucose availability. You know, one of the worst things you can do with resistance training is to have some sort of carbohydrates before the training session so that your insulin levels are elevated during training. That's you'll get the least benefit from the resistance training if you're doing that. And by least benefit, I mean both the increase in muscle mass and the health benefits that resistance training can can cause. Um, so I'm a little more iffy on your resistance training at time of day. I mean, in the nighttime is obviously the best if you're carb backloading because then you can utilize that insulin resist, that loss of insulin sensitivity in the evening and you can eat your carbs immediately post-workout, get those filled back up and make sure they don't overflow into your fat tissue. Um, well, I, I guess when I was researching some of this, one of the things I came across was that, um, you know, obviously we have this diurnal rhythm in insulin sensitivity with higher sensitivity in the morning, less in the evening. But then it can across. Right. Yeah, if you're healthy, correct. <laughs> that doesn't go, that doesn't go a far a long way these days. Um, right. And then um, there, you know, I came across a diurnal rhythm in mitochondrial oxidative capacity, so that with the capacity peaking in the evening hour was one of the things I saw that would, was affected by circadian rhythm as well, as well. Well, you, you would expect that, right? If your insulin sensitivity is highest in the morning, then it's trying to push as much glucose through the cells as possible earlier in the morning, which means your oxidation capacity should be down during those times. But my, I don't want to say my take, um, that that's under the assumption that you've been entrained to a certain diet type. The The problem here is all of these studies and all of these conclusions we're making are based on people who have been entrained to a certain diet type from literally day one. I mean, there's very few infants that are raised ketogenic. You know, you just, yeah. it doesn't exist. You're growing up under this certain paradigm of how you eat. And the human body, it's, is very, very flexible. That's probably one of our biggest evolutionary advantages is our flexibility. I mean, we're amazingly flexible in when we can do things, when we're awake, when we're asleep, how we can set those rhythms. And I think a lot of the rhythms that they see in humans from a chronobiological the chronobiology the field of chronobiology you can't say if those are intrinsic or if they're entrained and entrainment is where you're forcing the body over time to get used to nutrients or activity at certain times of day and then the bot the rhythms of the body then start to follow that behavior 
and we you know you can see this in feeding studies if you eat carbohydrates on a regular basis every day at the same time of day every day then ghrelin the hormone that makes you hungry will actually rise about 10 to 15 minutes before your normal meal time but if you take somebody who's not entrained then ghrelin doesn't rise at all until you actually start to eat so by eating carbohydrates which raises ghrelin or it actually what it does is it really suppresses ghrelin which then causes a spike later on if if you entrain yourself eating that way then your hormone system actually starts to mimic that pattern to be ready for you to eat that way so we've got tons of studies showing how easy it is to reset a lot of these rhythms in the human body and, and just so just to, to take a step back in terms of entrainment right so light is usually the kind of the biggest kind of entrainment factor if we can look at circadian rhythm but like you said food intake maybe even macronutrient intake at certain times activity temperature right, right? all those things can affect entrainment correct and I, you know i'm not convinced of how important light entrainment is uh there's there's just historical data there's things we know about our ancient ancestors and also just certain things about us like our the human eye is most sensitive to detail and in the light intensity of dusk which means we were really active in the evenings like it doesn't i don't know why how that would happen if light was a major entrainment factor for all these other systems you know I, it's another one of those things that you know from day one when we're born that's how we're entrained and this is a case what i would call a case study i hate it when people say the n equals one experiment that is not an experiment it's a case study Stop. An anecdote. <laughs> yeah, stop making it out to be something special. It's not you're not a special snowflake. You did some stupid procedure and you got some results. It means nothing for the rest of us. So n equals one experiments don't exist. But in my own personal case study, when <laughs> and this is going to sound weird, but I did a lot of weird stuff when I was in when I was starting high school. When I got up really early in the mornings, you know, when you first turn on the light, it's still dark outside and it takes a while for your eyes to adjust. Like I always hated that feeling. I hated that, like getting my eyes to adjust the light. I didn't want the lights to go on. So I had this brilliant idea, right? I'll just sleep with the lights on. And then when I get up in the morning, my eyes will already be adjusted. <laughs> did that work out for you? It did it to did. this day. Like I actually sleep better and I'll go into dream states if I sleep with intense light on, not just like a night light or whatever. Like I have to have the full room lights on and I get the best sleep when I do that. If it's dark, I usually don't have dream states. Like I'll sleep okay, but I don't, I have, I, I never go into the dream state. So here's a situation where for over a decade, I entrained myself to light sensitivity in a totally different paradigm and I'm not fat. My blood work always comes out perfect. I'm, you know, I have none of these problems that they say I, I should be falling apart, right? I should be overweight, obese, all kinds of things. And they just haven't 
manifest themselves for me. So am I special? I doubt it. I mean, maybe I'm special in other ways because of course I'm going to think that I'm a little bit egocentric, but as far as that, I don't think I'm special in any way. I just entrained myself to a different, to a different schedule. And I, I think that's the case, you know, what we see in people who are shifted is they're probably trying to mix these states. I know a lot of firefighters when we were working with firefighters, you know, they would be on their regimen where they would be up all night, they'd be on call. So they'd have this really weird schedule. And then the days off, they try to get on the schedule of their family, right? That kind of disruption. Yeah. I could see that causing problems if you're on a carbohydrate based diet, but Sorry, I went on another right. Those are no, those are well, called. That's, uh, that's a good, I, you know, I, you know, that's a good point because I think maybe when we look at it from a, a larger perspective, it might not mean necessarily the, um, it, it's it's the lack of entrainment that maybe gives you more issues than than it is the entrainment or how you entrain yourself, right? I mean, so like you look at the firefighters, they're never getting entrained in any type any type of rhythm, and, right. and what what do we see? They're more likely to be insulin resistant. They're more likely to have heart disease. They're more likely to get cancer. I mean, obviously, they have other environmental exposures, but I think that's yeah. a really key factor there. And and as well as you know, I, I have a lot of healthcare providers that work night shift in my office come to see me. And you know, for the majority of them, they're all doing pretty well. I mean, every once in a while, we'll see one who's probably you know eating too many donuts in the break room, and they're you know they're on they're on their way to diabetes. But in general, if 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 this were a huge factor. One would think we would, I would see more of these patients, you know, um, having more issues and maybe it has to do with more the lack of entrainment than versus entrainment and when are you entrained to. Correct. That, that, that's the whole, whole argument here is, you know, are you entrained period? There's no, you know, are you making sure that you're getting your it's dark enough when you go to sleep and all those kind of things. I don't think it matters. I think it matters how consistently you're entrained. And then actually a, a lot of my new work shows it's still, <laughs> of course, very heavily dependent on your macronutrients, specifically carbohydrates, carbohydrates. It's amazing. All the things they change. If you're on a carbohydrate diet, one of the most important things to see if you got adequate sleep, regardless of light sensitivity, whether it was dark out or whatever, is if you were asleep long enough for your brain to refill its glycogen reserves. Hmm. If, and that seems to be a key trigger for sleep in people who are on a carb-based diet. When their brain glycogen levels get below a certain threshold, they get very sleepy. And this is something I don't really experience. You know, I sleep maybe four hours a night, five hours sometimes, and sometimes less. Sometimes I just don't go to sleep. So, and again, I don't have any of these health problems. I should be falling apart. I should be a total wreck. And I'm coming up on 44 years of age, and people here in Belgrade think I'm in my mid-30s. They like, they think I'm lying to them when I tell them how old I am. So it's not taking a physical toll. It's not taking a visual toll and it's not taking a metabolic toll. So my question is how important is all this sleep stuff? How important is all these 
you know, making sure you get adequate sleep, making sure that it's dark enough when you are sleeping and how much of it is you are making yourself constantly sick. You're moving a little bit deeper into a disease state every day that you're on a mixed diet, specifically one that contains carbohydrates and your system is just fragile. Like how much of it is that I actually have all the evidence to say, yes, it is because you are so fragile. And as you become more fragile, you have to focus on more and more minutia in order to feel good. But there's only so much you can do to continue to feel good. Eventually you're not going to feel good. Yeah. And, and then, and then it harkens back to the point of, okay, so maybe you do these things you're, you can also be fragile in the other sense that you're committed to having to do certain things to be not fragile and not, but you, any type of disruption to that and you fall apart. Right. Right. So, well, so, well, my argument is if you're doing those things because you're fragile, it's not making you less fragile, right? You're still fragile and you're actually making yourself more fragile because down the line, people on the paleo diet have experienced this. I've worked with so many people and I know you have too, where they went paleo and they cut out all of the foods that they were supposedly allergic to. And then three, six months down the line, all of a sudden they're allergic to even more things. They become more and more fragile while they were trying to make themselves more healthy. And that's actually something you should expect. You know, any person who promoted paleo who would deign to call themselves a scientist would have recognized that effect. There's there's plenty of research to show that as you take allergens out of a person's diet or out of a person's life, they become allergic to more and more things. There is not a respectable scientist who would have promoted paleo who wouldn't have warned people of that. Well, we see that in kids too. You know, kids yeah. who, um, if they avoid, like I think the big one right now is kids who avoid peanuts earlier in life are more likely to be peanut allergy when they get older. Yeah, when they first started worrying about peanut allergies, there was an explosion like two or three years later of kids with peanut allergies. So, yeah, and it's exactly what you're saying. They found out, oh, taking that, taking that out of the kid's diet or making parents worried about it so their kids didn't eat peanuts made them more allergic to peanuts. And we see inner city kids have a lower incident of asthma because they're actually exposed to a lot more dust and all kinds of crap when they're kids. You know, we think about city air is toxic and, you know, it's definitely dirtier than it is out in the country. But they have in that dirtier environment, they're used to more of the potential allergens and their body gets used to them. It's not the opposite way. You don't take allergens out of this, out of your life to become allergy free. You're just going to increase the incidence of allergy, assuming you're sick or you're getting sick, which everybody is if they're on a carbohydrate based diet or a mixed diet. Well, no, carbohydrate based diet period. Uh, oh, I always like your definition of bulletproof anyways. So, <laughs> well, <laughs> well, there's really being bulletproof, the dictionary <laughs> definition of bulletproof. And then there's Dave Asprey's bulletproof where you have to take 30 supplements a day or you're going to fall apart. I don't know how how anybody could call that bulletproof. No. So, you know, to, to come back full circle, you know, it always comes back to the same kind of mantra. 
you know, stay low carb, eat your carbs at night if you eat carbs, and weight train, right? Yeah. And essentially, that's, that's that's your simple way of staying healthy. It's a very basic set of rules. Uh, that definitely doesn't cover all the bases, but it's a very basic set of rules that will work for a lot of people. And so the ultimate synopsis of this podcast is anything like time-restricted feeding and all these other things, you know, there's a really good chance that you have way more control than they lead on. Like time-restricted feeding is just BS. There's no legitimate science to say that you're going to get health benefits from time-restricted feeding. I'm sorry. Evidence might come along later, but I highly doubt it. Um, There is an instance where it could slow down the rate of sickness. I, I will say that. Or if if you're super healthy, then you could escape sickness at all. If you're already pretty sick, it's not the diet for you. So if you're looking to use it to lose weight, get healthy, it's not going to work in that capacity. And then all these other things, you have way more control than you think. Um, you're not helpless. I mean, you hear all this stuff all the time. I feel like humans are the most fragile thing on this earth if you don't wear blue tinted sunglasses and you don't get this number of hours of sleep and you don't have blackened out curtains and if you ever touch gluten and if you eat peppers and if you like you know the list goes on and on and on it's like you're gonna get sick and it's like how could we possibly be that fragile and have made it through millions of years of evolution like it just doesn't make sense to me it's a good question I mean, I, I I would say that maybe over the last hundred years, I, I think that if you look at like, let's just look at the environment, I, I think that you see this kind of exponential curve in how our environment has changed, let's say in the last hundred years over the previous thousand years, right? I mean, yeah. how, do, how does that interplay with this? Uh, you know, I don't think anybody has the answer, but I'm sure it's not a well, good thing. Right. Actually, over the last hundred years is when we had the expl- explosion of cheap, convenient, shelf-stable, so in other words, always available, carbohydrates. This is true. Yeah, that's, I mean, it, it's that simple. It's not this high fructose, you know, you don't have to look for that many correlations. There's an explosion in that should be a pretty good clue of where we should look. So I think this is a longer show than I promised the new shows would be. I said we were going to limit them to 30 minutes, but I I think this was worth the full conversation. Yeah, definitely. It was good talking to you again. Yeah, anything else you want to add? You know, like I said, keep it simple. I mean, I, I still use the same tools that I've been using for the last 10, 15 years with my patients. You know, keep your carbs low, try to even up at night. You know, try to exercise and weight train. Um, those are things that I really, you know, focus on with my patients. Um, I, I am, I, I just get, it's really frustrating to have patients coming in and I'm looking at their, you know, their their food logs and, you know, they're, they're hitting 150, 200 grams of fat, 60 grams of protein, you know, and then, you know, they come to me and they're like, this is not working. I'm like, yeah, I, I wonder why, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Yeah. And, 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 and this and that and the fear of carbohydrate as well is something that really is 
it's quite challenging now because God forbid I recommend, well, why don't you have, why don't you eat some carbs a couple times uh, a month, you know? Why don't you do it like in the evening, just have like 100 grams, see how it goes. Not a, not a large amount, right? Right. And, and it's like, it's like I'm a heretic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what the entire goal moving forward is, is to try to give people the tools to make themselves healthy. And we will leave this show with that and deconstructing health. Thanks for being on today, Rocky. Thanks for having me. And we'll talk to everybody next time. Bye.